Opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show today is about graduate management admissions test, which is very interesting because a lot of the students here on the campus are going to be taking this test and they're going to be wondering about why this is on our show and what has what has it got to do with privacy and security. So we are going to be speaking with corporate counsel for the graduate management admissions test. Let me tell you a little bit about our wonderful guest. Alan Brandt is corporate counsel and chief privacy officer for GMAC, which owns the Graduate Management Admissions Test. That's called the GMAT. And this is an exam delivered to post-prospective graduate business students in 111 countries worldwide. In fact, my son, who has an MBA from the University of Chicago, took that test. And um, this is, this is you know, really a, a very worldwide test that everybody looks at. Alan Brandt provides legal guidance, and counsel on the United States and domestic consumer privacy issues. He also creates data protection policies and procedures, and he responds to all sorts of privacy inquiries and leads the privacy training program. Now, in addition, he monitors compliance with the consul's marketing programs, and he oversees the filing of international data processing application and notices. He also happens to be a member, a board member for the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And you've heard that I've had many guests from IAPP on the show, and I'm one of those members. And he also is um, an advisory board member of the Future of Privacy Forum, which is a Washington, D.C. privacy think tank. So you can learn more about him and his company at gmac.com. And of course, you can also look at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see his picture and his bio. And we link to his website. So without further ado, I'm so happy to welcome Alan all the way from Virginia. Hi there. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Alan, I should tell you that I lived in Charlottesville for three years. And uh, so I and I used to go up to Virginia, Ruston, and that whole area. We had friends from Ruston, and really loved um, that whole area. Got to go to C- D.C. a lot. So it's a, it's beautiful. I love Virginia. It's a great place. It's a great place. I agree. And when I lived in Charlottesville, I remember I went to Monticello, which was Thomas Jefferson's home, so many times that I could have been the docent. You know, <laughs> I knew everything. I went there all the time. It was really fun. 
So anyway, why don't you tell us a little bit more about GMAC? Now, remember, we're here on the campus of University of California in Irvine, which is a really great school. And a lot of people will be taking that test. So this is perfect. Well, that's great. And GMAC, and we, we call it GMAC, was started by a group of business schools back in 1953. And we, are, we exist based on the business schools to, to meet their needs. They wanted to find some type of exam or create an exam that didn't exist at the time as how do we choose the right people for their program. And I should tell you that UCI, where you're based, is one of our member schools. Yeah, it's wonderful. And, and, I think, and I'm pretty sure that my son took that, too, before he got, you know, to get his MBA. I'm sure he did in Chicago. Yeah. He, well, actually, he, but he went to Duke. So was that affiliated with that? Well, it wouldn't have mattered, would it? Because you don't Wouldn't matter. It. No, yeah. I'm pretty sure that's what he studied for. But anyway, yeah, he graduated. He got his MBA. So thank you for the help. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> there's, there's more than 5,000 programs around the world who use the exam. Yeah. So someone who takes the GMAT at UCI is taking it to go to school anywhere in the world. Wow. Now, i got to ask you, how is it that you got into that? How, how did you get to be at GMAC? And what well, in, interestingly, I was with another company, and I was at one of the IAPP summits in Washington, and I happened to see a job posting there. Isn't that something? Now, you and, know... Go ahead. And I'm sorry, I researched the organization and what they were doing and the management and and everything about it and decided to uh, start a conversation. And I've been here five years. Isn't that wonderful? You know, being a member of IAPP since the first year it started, I presented at the very first conference ever when there were only about, I don't know, maybe 80 people there, something like that. Now we have, oh gosh, thousands. But... um, one of the the things that's so exciting is that for we have a lot of people who download our podcasts that are members. And so if you're, you know, changing jobs, just think about yeah. using IAPP because that's a great place to, to get other other jobs and meet people. And it's it's really wonderful. And also, if we have students who are interested in privacy, who've been listening to the show, they might want to consider coming to IAPP as a student and getting to know people and getting a job like you did. Absolutely, and there's also uh, scholarships available for students to attend the conferences. Perfect. Fun. And we go every year, and we do radio shows there, so they could come with us. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the privacy and security measures that that you have in place for the GMAT test. Okay. So imagine that you you go into a, a specialized center to take the test. It's not like when you took the SAT, you're in a high school auditorium or something, you go into, in the U.S., you're going to a room that was literally has a patented design specifically to take a test. Hmm. And it's a computer adaptive test, meaning that each person sits in front of a computer workstation. And so when you first check in, we look at your ID, typically a driver's license, and then we do a palm vein biometric that we'll probably talk some more about. And we take your photograph, and then you get admitted into the test room, and then you're seated at the workstation that's specifically reserved for you. Interesting. And one of the other things that we do is, from a privacy standpoint, there's very limited people who can see different types of data. 
you know, biometrics have one type of data, photograph has something else, test scores have something else. And we also, there's limits on how often you can retest and how many times you can test, so we don't want people having an opportunity to remember anything or see anything. Well, I, I like the fact that you have the biometric data uh, separated also so that people can't gather this all this information. You know, being that I have an expertise in identity theft, <laughs> um, there have been problems, not with your test that I know of, but there have been problems that I've actually been an expert on in which um, the SATs, for example, were um, the, the little... Uh, card that you get that has you know the, your score and everything uh, with the social security number on it by the way was yes. posted on on a bulletin board in a school for th- literally thousands of students to see and I was the ex- one of the experts on this case which settled but the point that somebody could then steal this kid who got like a perfect score on the SAT practically they could use his identity then to apply for other schools that he wasn't applying for. You understand what I'm saying? So there was Amazing. some real, yeah, it was a, it was a terrible case actually, but um, but those are the kinds of things that, that you have to really watch out for that people don't realize there are real privacy invasions that can happen when your social security number is used as the number. Now, is that is, is that a student ID number too or for you guys or what? No, we stopped collecting social security numbers in 2005, and by the end of 2006, we had purged the database. So there has, we have not had one of those for five years now. That's really, yeah. And this case was about five years ago. It wasn't you, but like I said, it was SALS, It was the regular SAT exams. So that is really, really important that you don't collect something like the Social Security number. If you don't need it, you can assign a separate number. Yes, Let's talk a little bit about the palm vein technology because a lot of people don't understand about biometrics being like a piece of your, it could be an iris scan, it could be your palm, it could be your fingerprint. Those are called biometrics. They they are supposedly unique to you. So tell us about the palm. Okay. Um, imagine when you, when you show up at the test center, at the front desk is a little box. It's about a one-inch cube, it's black, and you hold your hand over it, and it takes a picture of the palm of your hand like you aimed a TV remote control at it. And the computer takes the image of the veins inside your hand, and it converts it to a template. Mm-hmm. And a template is a series of numbers, and it's immediately encrypted. And so when you show up, when you first walk in the door, we'll will take your biometric, and then let's say you take the first section of the exam and you're eligible to take a break. So you leave the room, you go to the restroom, you get some water, whatever. You come back. We've had people in the past who sent their twin in on the second part of the exam. Oh, my goodness. So we will ask you again. Let's see. You you hold your hand over the device, and the computer will say, yes, this is the same hand that I just saw five minutes ago and you'll get escorted back in to complete your test. And some of the things that we did when we built this system, we started with fingerprints, and we, we started that in 2006, and by 2008 we were phasing it out for a number of reasons. The palm vein is more accurate. You never touch anything. You hold your hand over the device, and that was a huge issue 
with regulators around the world hmm. because they didn't want the ability for us to collect data without the person's permission. Right. So if you think about you touch a keyboard, but you leave the room, I have all your fingerprints on the keyboard. Yes, yes. Even though I ne- may, you may never have been asked. Right. So by doing this, there was, there was no touch te- technology or no trace. And one of the other things is it's incompatible with anything else, which to us is a good thing. Yes. So if somebody could get break in and steal the database, and if someone could buy the same hardware and software, the database, you still couldn't read it. You still couldn't use it. The key is different for us than anyone else. Mm-hmm. So in terms of um, de- dealing with, like, the European Union that has, you know, you have to have prior consent, w- do you get prior consent in writing that we can do this? Or how do you, how do you deal with that issue? Because you're still capturing um, personally identifiable, identifiable data. So how do you deal with that with the European Union countries? Very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> from from an, a person standpoint, of course, we give you the notice when you, be, when you sign up and register for the test. Right. But when you show up at the test center, we ask you again, you understand, here's the information we're going to collect, here's the purpose, it's coming back to the U.S., and you physically sign with an electronic pad, like on a credit card reader. Right. As far as the regulators, in some countries... The U.K., for example, we just have to give notice. We don't have to do anything else. So we we have notice to the information commissioner that we're taking the test. Here's the information that's going, coming back to the U.S. You cross over to France. There's a huge cultural issue around biometrics, particularly fingerprints, because of some of the history that's gone on in Europe. Right, right. You're talking about Germany and and. Is that what you're talking about? Like exactly. Some and of the Nazi some, issues? Yeah. All, all sorts of things. Yeah. So France, for example, we had to ask permission from the, the French regulatory agency. They're, the abbreviation is CNIL or CNIL. Yeah. And we spent almost a year just in France. I presented our materials to the CNIL. They asked many, many technical questions that we were back and forth a number of times. They asked us for certain guarantees that no one else in the world has ever asked for, like permission to come to the U.S. and see what we're doing. Interesting. And they gave us permission um, almost two years ago, in 2009. The first company that was allowed to take a biometric and have it leave the country. Mm. And, and, of course, the first exam that, that was ever used to take, a, to take a test. So they still reference our case quite often when you see something that the CNIL approves something, they like the, techno- the technology, they're comfortable with it, and we were able to show, and, I, and the, I'm using France because they're known worldwide as one of the toughest regulators in the world. Interesting. Now, are there any, what about, do you guys do this in China or in any of the Asian countries, like Japan, China, or anything? China is the second largest testing company for GMAT, so yes, we test in China, India, Korea, Hong Kong, so Most it everywhere. must be interesting that, that all of these different um, countries may have different requirements. Isn't that really a challenge? Yes, and they change all the time. <laughs> so what was approved today, next year you may find out that, that an update to the regulation changed something. For example, there's a lot of news in the last two or three weeks. A new regulation in India has just come into effect that requires for certain sensitive data, and biometrics are specifically listed, that you need prior consent to the person, and there's a whole series of steps. 
we already met them. We looked at the regulations and said, oh, we're already there. We have nothing to do. But if you read a lot of the articles, a lot of U.S. companies are having fits about collecting data in India today because they be- in one day they violate the law right. because it changed. So it makes sense to, to really adhere your practices to the very most strictest of all of the countries, and then you really are in a better position. You don't have to redo things. That's right, and that's pretty much what we decided to do in early 2006. Is we is GMAT looked at it worldwide and said, "What's the toughest standard we have to do? We have to that exists that we're going to have to meet, and let's make the whole company adhere to it." That to me makes a lot of sense. It just makes a lot of sense, and that's you know from my perspective as one who you know deals with privacy issues of, of people who have been violated all the time. It makes sense even in our country that we should look at what is the, the most, um, you know, stringent standard and then apply that to our own consumers so that we're protecting our own consumers as well. But, you know, that hasn't really happened, but that's kind of my two cents for, for you. <laughs> I happen to agree, Mari. It's also, there's a cost involved. It's expensive. It's that... very expensive to have a security breach that you have to notify, even if it's an offline one, you know, if, if, if there's been something offline it's, and it becomes public record through a lawsuit, that's, that's embarrassing and that costs you money, right? So Very why not so. step up to the plate and do it right the first time and then you be a leader and then that's a value added for your company. That's just... I, I can't agree more, but when you go in front of the CEO who says, I'm spending hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year in privacy and security controls for something that may or may not, and that's definite. He can see that right. every month, every year, against what's the odds of me having a breach and having to notify or do something else. It sometimes is a difficult sell. Yeah, I'm that's thankful. why they have to turn it into something like, okay, privacy is good for your business because you can use that as a marketing tool. Absolutely, and I'm <laughs> thankful. I work for an organization that the senior management and the board of directors agrees with this. We have a public-facing statement of privacy principles. This is how we're going to work. And the organization is comfortable running that way. I think it's terrific, especially because they're the graduate management admissions test for business schools. And and one of the things that you want to teach in business school is best practices, ethics, right? All those good things that that really are good for the economy as well. Exactly. And we feel an obligation If you think of the information that one of the students at UCI is going to give us to take the exam, you have your name and address and your standard background information. You'll have test scores. You'll have your photograph and a signature and the palm vein biometric and an audio recording of the the test session while he's sitting there for four hours. Um, So there's a lot of information on a person. If someone has a medical condition and needs a, a medical accommodation, we have HIPAA data, we have medical data coming in the office from around the world. You know, test scores are very sensitive, and there's federal laws, FERPA, and some of the other things that, that are associated with it. So we place a very high value on the sensitivity of all of that information of a person. I think it's terrific. We are speaking with a wonderful uh, corporate counsel and chief privacy officer. We're speaking with Alan Brandt, 
who is the Corporate Consul and Chief Privacy Officer for GMAC, which owns the Graduate Management Admissions Test. So if you're thinking, by the way, we don't just have students that listen. We have businesses that drive by here in Orange County, California. I don't know if you've ever been out here, but we're like the home of John Wayne Airport and all sorts of interesting things out here in Orange County. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so this is important for people to, to know. And not only as the graduate management uh, admissions test, but also for the businesses drive that drive by, you're a good corporate citizen to pr- provide a model for other businesses to, to really look at privacy and security as part of your corporate culture, right? I think that you said it wonderfully, Mari. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about um, an example of the effectiveness of your security program, you know, a little bit more about that. We talked about the, the palm vein, what other kind of security measures basically do you have like after the test is done? One of the things that we, I'll say we ask students not to do is <laughs> you don't discuss the questions on the exam, particularly when you get to a chat room or texting them to your friends. If you remember after four hours, any of these questions, but we have people who troll the internet and we have companies who also help us do this And they're looking for people saying, hey, I took the test, the GMAT yesterday, and here's five questions that I remembered. Yeah. And we found a website a couple years ago called ScoreTop. And we actually started monitoring all of this. And then we started matching someone who says, I took the test today, and their ID was able to... um, We started figuring out that these are really live, these are real people who just took the test, who in fact are, are now posting questions. And so uh, we were ultimately able to identify these, many of these people who posted. We canceled the scores. And now remember, this went on for many months. So we're canceling scores that were, in some cases, many, many months or more than a year after you took the test. So there's a good chance that you are already in school. Wow. And yeah. so we'll go back to the school and say, you know what, this person did something that they said they weren't going to do, we're canceling their score. And a number of schools revoked admissions, oh even, even after the semester started. Wow. So, so help me understand. So they have plenty of notice that if you do this, if you share it, this is what we're going to do and this is what could happen to you? Exactly. Okay. Okay. So they have prior notice. Of oh, that. they have prior notice. Yeah. And there, we've had cases where someone has had a, a conferred degree that has been revoked from a school for, wow. for having us cancel the score because the school says you got in fraudulently, so therefore everything you did doesn't count. Right. Now, I remember, and, and help me with this one, and maybe you guys do this, but I took the bar exam like, what, 28 years ago, 27 years ago, something like that, which was, you know, an exam as well. And the State Bar of California, they're very careful. But I remember when I studied for the bar, there were there were courses, and we had old tests to practice on. Is that? I mean, that that's. I don't know how they did that. You know, I just remember the course, the bar review courses. They had old exams. So, do you guys have like? Are there things like people can take? Obviously, they can take courses, and do they get old exams, or how does that work? Yes, we have. Anyone can go to the student website, which is mba.com. And just by creating an account, which is essentially an email address and a password, you can download free test prep software, 
which has a number of full-length tests, and they're timed, and you get to fee- understand what the look and feel of a computer-adaptive test looks like. Right, because it is helpful to practice. You know, I remember just taking... The only way I practiced for the bar was really just to take old exams because I knew it was the test taking and, you know, thank God I passed it the first time. But but I know that people who didn't pass it were not doing that. And so it's really it's not just about what you know and how you understand the the principles. It's also how do you take a test? Exactly. And so we have the free test prep software. We have guides that are official guides that have retired test questions. Um. Literally a few hours ago today, the iPhone app came live. So if you go to official GMAT in the App Store, you'll see the $5 um, app that works on an iPhone or iPod or iPad. And so you can get while you're on the, not driving, but while you're doing something other than behind the wheel, you could get test questions and you can purchase additional ones in different subjects if you want. And then there's a number of companies completely unaffiliated with us who have their own test prep material. Right. So in other words, if people can do it and they don't have to be cheating by by putting this other stuff up, that there's stuff out there that really will help people study for it. Correct. Yeah. Now, let's get back to how you have, I think you had told me that you have a company of just over 100 people. How do you do this in 110 countries? Well, and you're right. We we are 130 people total, 120 in the U.S. and the rest outside. And one of the things that I do is monitor many, many resources, online resources, that looking for when someone writes an article or something pops up that says a law is changing or being considered somewhere in the world. Also, in... Almost every country that we're testing in, and I say almost because in a few places we know there's no law, so I don't have to do this, but every single country where there's any type of privacy law or that we suspect might have one, we find local counsel who is an expert in their local market in data privacy. And so you just team with them. And we team with them, and so they'll send me an update. Oh, the regulation is changing for consent. Here's what, let's talk what we need to do. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, you don't have to worry about your job. It sounds like you have a lot of job security with all these crazy things happening. That's true. Yeah. And in a given year, out of the 111 countries that we're currently testing in, there's something happening in any given year between 25, 30, sometimes 35 countries in a year. Wow, exciting, though. Let me just ask you one more question because we're just about out of time. We could just talk forever. It's fascinating. Um, so tell me, Ellen, how, how um, you know, if we have a lot of students that a lot of students here got, are in the Paul Mirage School of Business, good, you know, we're a good school here. So how do you let people know about your privacy and security practices? Do you have it on your website or, or what? Well, of course, you can look at the privacy policy. It, there's a document called the GMAT exam, exam information bulletin that's on the website that details everything we're doing even to the point of how long we keep the data. So we'll tell people right up front, here's how long your test is valid, here's how long we keep all the different types of data we collect. Um, There's also a YouTube video that you can get to from from the MBA site that walks you through a live test center, and you can see the whole thing in action. You see someone walk in the door, you see them being handed their testing rules, you see them signing, you see the Palm Vein, the photo, the whole test experience. 
because we want people to see it, we want them to understand it, we want them to we want to reduce the anxiety, the anxiety and yeah. discomfort. I don't know what this is going to be like. You can watch the video and and feel like it's exactly it is it's a test center here in in, um, in Virginia. Wow! And they all look the same. Well, I think they're very lucky to have you for the last five years. I think that's terrific, Alan. So I'm going to just give your website, or you want to give your website, Alan Brandt? Sure. The student website, if you want to see the download the test prep software and, and see the, the student-facing things, is mba.com. Okay. And if you want corporate information, it's gmac.com. Well, you keep in touch with us, and we'll have you back again to tell us more about all the exciting things you're doing, Alan. Sounds great, Mary. Thank you. Okay, we'll see you soon. Okay, you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests, download our podcast, listen to archived interviews, and write us emails about what's important to you in the information age. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.